I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And our focus this morning will be on verses 21 to 33. And in particular, we will be bearing down on verses 25 to 27. But we will read the full passage for context. We're looking at how the church is the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ, the spirit-sanctified bride of Christ, made holy, pure, blameless by the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst, to be joined to one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased the church with his own blood. And there is no passage in the New Testament that speaks to this more clearly than Ephesians 5. So I hope that you will read together with me, beginning at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Controversial words, to be sure, but inspired words nonetheless. I need to say at the outset, this is not a sermon on marriage. I am anxious to get to the analogy that the Holy Spirit through Paul drives at when he describes the church as the bride of Christ. And when he says that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. But it would be impossible to deal with this scripture in an adequate way without at least touching on some of these other touchy subjects. So let me say a few things at the outset to 
hopefully defang some of the difficulties. The first is that marriage is God's idea, not ours. God gave the institution of marriage. And because God gave the institution of marriage, God has made the rules for marriage. He has designed it in a certain way to fulfill certain purposes. And the purposes that we're most familiar with are, of course, companionship. We pick a spouse because they're a good friend to us. We want a companion. Another reason is for sexual fulfillment between one man and one woman for life. That's God's design. But there's another purpose for marriage that we do not focus on enough. And that is how marriage is given to model the intimate relationship between Christ and his church. Christ and his church. The Anglican Book of Common Prayer puts it well. Describes marriage as an honorable state, instituted by God, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church. That means that if we're obedient to God, as he has made himself known to us in the scriptures, we must humble ourselves to learn his purposes for marriage. It's not for us to try to improve on what God has said or what God has given. It's not for us to try to outwit Scripture or to act as though we are somehow smarter than Scripture. And there is a reflex in all of us, especially right now, given our current cultural climate, that wants to push back on this or to relativize this or to say, well, it doesn't really mean what you think it means. It doesn't really say what you think it says. We can probably sweep most of this aside and maybe we can pluck a kernel here and there. We need to be aware of that temptation and avoid it at all costs. But that reflex is in you, it's in me, I feel it deeply, just like you do. But this is an institution established by God. And that means that the home, the family, is to serve as a microcosm of the church. The family, in other words, is a little church that models the priorities and models the design that God has given. The Christian home, the Christian family is a microcosm of the church. It's the church in miniature, in other words. And that means where we want to say, well, I mean, this is written in a patriarchal era, and, you know, it talks about slaves later, so a lot of this, it just doesn't really apply. We're living in a, a more enlightened age. We've moved beyond all of that, haven't we? Remember, it's not just the words of Scripture that are inspired. Also, the reasons given through the words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we need to pay attention not only to what the Holy Spirit says in the words, but also the reasons that the Holy Spirit gives for what he says in the scriptures. And these instructions are inextricably bound to the relationship between Christ and the church. Has Christ stopped loving the church? 
Well, then husbands, we can't stop loving our wives as Christ loved the church, can we? Does the church stop submitting to Christ as Lord? I hope not. Well, then wives must also submit to their own husbands. All right. So you're saying, all right, none of that has made this any easier to understand. What does that mean? Let me point out a few details. First, in verse 21, notice that there is a mutual submission. Every single member of the body of Christ is called to submit in one way or another. No one is too high or too mighty or too good to humble himself or herself before another brother or sister. There is mutual submission. No one can avoid this. Everyone has to submit to someone. But it looks a little different for husbands and wives because God has created men and women to be different, all by his design. Notice also, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Not to men in general, but to your own husband, the one to whom you have been promised, and the one who has promised himself to you, if it's a Christian marriage, to your own husbands. This is not patriarchy. He's not saying there's anything superior about men or anything inferior about women. He's saying that this is what it is to look like for your own husband. Respect your own husband. This is a posture of your heart toward the husband God has given you. And some of you say, well, do you know this guy? Have you met him? I don't really want to submit to him. Remember, you do it out of reverence for Christ. Don't just do it because of him. Do it for Jesus, and God will honor it. But that submission should never entail leading you to sin. It should never lead to abuse. It should never lead to bodily harm in any way. And here we need to fall back on those words in Acts 4. We must obey Christ rather than men. Also, notice that there are three times, three times, the number of verses devoted to husbands and men as are devoted to women and wives. Just take a look. Look at the paragraph for yourself. Your translation is probably broken up by paragraph. Look at how much is devoted to husbands. So men, lest you get high and mighty, lest you think that somehow it's your prerogative to exercise a tyrannical rule in your household, humble yourself. Don't think more of yourself then you should remember, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And this brings me to where I really want to bear down. And I believe that the more gripped we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, by the love of Christ for his church, the more faithful we are going to be in our marriages, husbands and wives. The more we're going to know what it looks like 
to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and what he's done for his church. This is where we need to bear down. And notice in verse 27, he says that the reason Christ loved the church in this way was to present her to himself as a radiant church, a church with splendor, with glory, with shine, luster. Now let's be honest for a few moments with ourselves before God. Can we honestly say that there's much radiance about the church? Whether it's this local body of believers or the church, capital C, is there much radiance? Many around us have said, no, there's absolutely no radiance there. I have better things to do on Sunday morning. I don't need that. What about for you? Do you see any radiance in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is it that this radiance is so rare? Why is it that it is all too rare in this present time? I believe it's because we have forgotten what makes the church radiant in the first place. We have forgotten what makes the church shine in the world. And we need to remember this, that the true radiance of Christ's bride, the church, has nothing to do with ornate buildings. Nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with growing budgets. It has nothing to do with bustling ministries. All the things that we typically look to, to say, oh, that's a church on fire. Oh, that's, that's a, a church that's radiant. Look at their building. Look at how many people are flocking there. Look at all the ministries. They're so busy. Look at how their budget is growing and growing. They're overflowing with cash. Oh, surely that's how she, she glows. And of course, right now, when so many of those metrics are trending downward and fast, so many say, well, there's no shine left there. And many are predicting doom for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true radiance of Christ's church, his bride, her loveliness, her beauty, it has nothing to do with any of those metrics. It has everything to do with whether or not she is radiating the holy character, the holy character of the one who redeemed her. Of the redeemed redeeming love Christ has for her. And the more gripped we are by His love for us, then the more the church is going to shine. The more you and your individual walk with the Lord are going to radiate. The more this local body of believers is going to shine like a city on a hill like a light that cannot be hidden. 
So we need to bear down here and, and look at how is it, in view of what Christ has done for his church, that we can miss it, that we can make the radiance and the splendor and the glory about everything but what it is truly about. Why are we not more radiant? Why am I not more radiant in my individual life? That's what we need to ask. The first reason I want to highlight is that the church can forget Christ's unique love for her. The church can forget Christ's unique love for her. Take another look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What has Christ done for the church? He has given himself for her. He hasn't given her a thing. He hasn't just given her a gift. He's given his very life to redeem God's people, his church, his bride, to display his love for the world, to see in choosing this people. And we miss this often because what you're more likely to hear in the church today is God's love for everyone. And am I saying God doesn't love everyone? Not at all. God is good and merciful to everyone. He loves all. He created this world. He governs over it with benevolence and goodness and righteousness. But we can't stop there. We have to go further because the Scriptures drive us to go further. There is a unique, special, and particular love that Christ has for his people. John 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep who recognize my voice. Who know when I call their name. It's an aspect that is sadly undervalued and underpreached the particular love of Jesus for his church. And we don't like this because, again, we have this reflex that wants, us, that wants to say, it's all inclusive. We don't want anyone to feel left out. But just listen to what Jesus says in his prayer to the Father, John 17, in verse 9. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. I don't, I'm not praying for the world, Father. I'm praying for those you have given me. Those you have marked out for your sovereign purposes by your grace. I'm praying for them. Jesus died for his church. Now someone says, are you saying that he didn't die for the world? Well, I also believe what 1 John 2 says in verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And here's what you need to know. The atonement of Christ on the cross is fully sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world. There is no shortcoming in what he has done. So I don't want this, I I don't want anyone hearing this message, anyone here, to think, oh, maybe there's not enough in what Jesus did to cover my sins. Oh, no. We can't use that as an excuse. His blood shed on the cross for sinners is fully sufficient to atone for the sins of the world. But it is only efficient. It is only effective in those who receive it by faith. Those to whom the Holy Spirit applies what Jesus has done for them. The special, unique, particular love of Christ for his church. He gave himself up for her. And this is so vital because when we water this down and dilute it, and and we lose the particular, unique nature of it, we lose this truth. When Jesus went to the cross, when he was flogged and beaten and had the crown of thorns pressed down into his brow, when he was lifted up on the cross naked, when he was mocked and ridiculed, when he knew what it means to be forsaken by God, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who did he have in mind? You. You and me. If you believe that that's what he's done for you, if you believe that his blood is fully fully sufficient to atone for your sins and mine, then it becomes effective in your life and mine. We must preach this. We must hold on to this. But now someone says, well, I mean, doesn't that lead to arrogance and pride? I mean, a frozen chosen mentality. I mean, what we think, oh, he died for me, but he didn't die for you. Remember this. Why did he give himself for the church? Was it because she was lovely? Because she was worthy in some way? Oh no. She has stains and wrinkles and blemishes. She is not holy. She is not blameless. She is not righteous. She's anything but lovely. That's who he died for. But God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there is nothing in me that makes me worthy of God's intervention in my life. There is nothing that merits His grace in me. I am just as deserving of eternal death and hell as anyone else. so are you. I can't even say, oh, well, he chose me because I believed, and he didn't, or she didn't. 
No. On my own, I would never choose to believe. I only believe because of God's sovereign and free intervention in my life. And I cannot explain why he intervened in my life and not in hers or in his. All I can do is fall back on the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 11 when he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Why did he do it? He doesn't say. He just says, even so, Father, yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And if it pleased the Father, then it should please his people. Even so, Father, yes, this was your sovereign will. There's nothing in us to merit this. Your story and my story is that we are by nature children of wrath. Just look at Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's me. That's you. But don't miss this. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love for us, for His church, for those marked out, for those called out, He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. What can bring a dead sinner back to life? Nothing but the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Nothing in me, nothing in you. Are you gripped by this? Do you care? Do you know that you are uniquely loved? Do you know that your sins have been uniquely atoned for by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? But so often we forget. We forget. May we remember. And notice the means he uses. By the washing with water through the word. Mixed metaphor. How does a word wash anybody? Well, possibly he is pointing to the reality of what baptism symbolizes. Namely, that we are buried with Christ. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. But we have Jesus saying this in John 15, verse 3, to his disciples. You are already clean. Because of what? The word I have spoken to you. Because of the word I have spoken to you. And again, in John 17, verse 17, he says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Make them holy, Father, by your word. And this is why we never ever get beyond the word of God. Because this is the means that the Holy Spirit uses to awaken dead sinners. To say, come to life. Come to life. It's the Word. And the Word has this power to discern and to judge, to penetrate. It is alive and active. And it can cleanse your heart and my heart if we will submit and open ourselves up to it. That's the means he uses. We need the Word. We can't make it about anything but it, but the Word. 
Now, moving to verse 26, we see that the church can take the purpose of Christ's love for granted. The church can take the purpose of Christ's love for granted. What is the purpose? Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with word through with water through the word. To make her holy. Jesus died on the cross for his church to pay the penalty for our sins. But the power of sin is still at work in you and in me, and it's present in this room right now. So we need help. We need help. We're not holy yet, but this is why he died. He didn't die so that we could sit comfortably in a pew. He didn't die so that we could glory in our building, so that we could glory in offerings, so that we could glory in anything we do. He died to make his church holy by washing with water through the word. This is what it's about. This is what makes the church shine. This is our radiance. And it's all too rare because we've forgotten this. We've taken it for granted. We don't really care about holiness. When was the last time you prayed for more holiness in this church? When was the last time you prayed for more holiness in the church writ large, capital C? Ever? This is why Jesus died. We need to care about this. Now, he has not commissioned us to go be the moral police, to get up in one another's business, but we are to love one another enough to care. Brother, sister, are you walking in holiness? Do you care whether or not you're walking in holiness? Are you willing to submit to one another, to have a brother or sister say, I don't think that's pleasing to the Lord? It's not just my opinion. Read his word. It's his word that cleanses and sanctifies and makes us holy and blameless. We cannot take this for granted. And then look at the goal. Verse 27. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The church can fail to set her hope on the ultimate goal of Christ's love. To set her hope on the goal of Christ's love. What is the goal of Christ's love? To present her to himself as a radiant church, glowing, shining, glorious, splendorous, so that when the Lord Jesus returns for the marriage feast of the Lamb, when he comes to finish what he began, his church can be perfected in holiness so the world can see and he can say, look at my church. <laughs> look at where she was. Look at what she was apart from me. Stained, wrinkled. Deformed in the ugliness of sin. Disordered. Misguided. Dead in trespasses. But look at her now. She's alive. She's beautiful. She's lovely. She's attractive. She radiates the love of her Savior. The redeeming love of Jesus for His church. That's the goal. 
That's our hope. But I'm afraid so often we settle for far less. You know, people pay good money to deal with their stains and wrinkles, to try to fight the clock, to prolong age as long as possible. And I don't blame you. No judgment. As long as you know it's a losing battle in the end. It's a losing battle in the end. Try as we might. Try to keep our youthfulness, our loveliness, our beauty as long as we can. If you live long enough, the wrinkles are going to come for you. So don't put your hope in anything in this world. Your body, your looks, it's going to go the way of all flesh. No, pin your hope on what Jesus says He's going to do. Jesus is the one by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us, who sanctifies His church. And it will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. And in the end, I have no doubt that we're going to run into people whom we knew, and we're not going to recognize them. (laughs) What? That's what God's grace has done? That's what glorification looks like? I don't recognize you. When cold hearts are, are melted and brought alive by the fire of God's Spirit. When our laziness in prayer and in deeds of good service are emboldened. When all the things that we fail to do now, all the reasons that the church fails to radiate as she should right now, when all of that is cast away and she is perfected, she is glorified, she is sanctified by the power of the Spirit. What a day. What a day. Are you looking forward to that day? Are you putting your hope in that day? It's the only thing we can really be sure of in this world. But I have to ask you, Do you know this Savior? Have you known His redeeming love in your life? Is any of this familiar to you? To say, yes, I know that. Praise God for what He's done for me. Have you experienced any of this? Hear the good news. While marriage in this life is till death do us part, There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not even death. Not even death. So if you belong to Him, if you have given your life to Him, if you have been marked out and called out to be His bride, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear death. You can look forward to this day. You can love your family more. You can 
love life in this world more because you know this isn't heaven. Don't treat it like it's heaven. It's limited. It's finite. But when you know that one day the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray you are included in it, will be presented to her Savior as a radiant church, a splendorous church, a glorious church, we have a reason to rejoice. May we leave this place today rejoicing. May there be gladness of heart because of this truth so that we shine, we glow, and the world knows we've been in the presence of God. May that be true of you and of me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we praise you for your love. A love so deep, so high, so wide that we can't even begin to get a handle on it. And Father, I know that everything I've just said is only a drop in the bucket of describing the glories of your love for your church. Everything I've said is as one sentence compared to the books that could be written about the hope of glory in that great and final day when your church, the church purchased by the blood of Jesus, is fully cleansed, fully assured that Jesus has paid it all in full. Lord, may we look forward to that day. May we be ready for that day. And if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus as Lord, I pray that this would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that your grace would take hold of them, that they would be assured of just how amazing your grace is, and that they wouldn't walk away unchanged, but that they would be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, change us all. Change us all. Make us more like Jesus. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.